that gut feel. You, you know something's there. You, you, you know that uh, there's something that you aren't quite seeing, but it, it's there to be, to be had. I, a lot of times you see this in mystery movies, uh, especially ones that they don't show you who did it. You have to figure out along the way. I know for me, if, if you were like me, years ago I watched The Sixth Sense, if you've ever seen that movie. And then, yeah, you get to the end, you're like, oh, I've got to watch it again. Because <laughs> I missed everything. And then you're thinking, oh, that's true, that didn't happen, or this wasn't touched, or that didn't move, etc. Um, it's interesting, when, you, when we go through things like that, we look back and we're like, why didn't we see it? Why, you know, how did I miss that? You, you may have seen this, you know, there's so many different ways you can do this. Those pictures where there's hidden things in the, the picture and you're trying to find it and can't quite see it. Uh, if you were like me years ago, you remember those old 3D pictures they would print and you'd have to stare at them. I mean, you had to like stare at a certain spot so they finally would become 3D and you could see them. Oh, there it is. It's there the whole time. I just didn't see it. Uh, you know, a lot of times there's things in our lives where we just can't quite put our finger on it. But we know it's there. We know it's there. And this morning, I, I think that's what I hope to show you is something that maybe biblically we couldn't quite put our finger on it until the Lord, through the work in the Spirit, particularly in Paul's life, revealed it. And he calls it a mystery. And reveals this mystery about marriage to us and how marriages reveal the gospel. And you know, I think sometimes in our marriages, we realize there's something more significant going on. And what I hope we'll walk away from this morning is at least convinced biblically that's exactly what is happening. There's something greater and more significant going on in our marriages than may at first meet, meet, meet our eye. That there's something maybe we need to put our finger on as we look at that. You know, last week I talked about this overarching premise that our marriages must be grounded in the gospel because they are designed to display the gospel. Right? We need to ground our marriages in the gospel because they are designed to display the gospel. And that's really this morning specifically what I want to make the argument for. And very, very specifically, that part of the gospel that marriage is designed to display is the glorious union of Christ and the church. That there is a special way that God uses marriages to help us understand something that is really, really hard to get our brains around. I mean, if I just told you, do you realize if you believe in Christ and you put your faith in Him for your salvation, you are in union with Christ? Okay, thanks. What exactly does that mean, right? I mean, how, what does it look like? What, how, do, how do you explain that? Well, the way we're going to see that the Word of God explains it is through understanding the analogy, this, this powerful symbol and picture of how marriage shows us what it looks like to be in union with Christ. Or at least it should. And so I think it will help us understand the seriousness with which we need to take marriage. Right? I think it's fair to say in our society today, marriage has become much more lightly treated than it was in, in the past. What I mean by that, and it's not new to our society, but I think it's become much more prevalent in our society, that marriage is seen as a risky endeavor 
And therefore, you need to make sure you have a way out. Right? <laughs> I mean, we, now we, I mean, over my lifetime has been developed prenuptial agreements. I mean, there's probably some of you that can think back. There was no such thing as prenuptial agreements. But now such exists. Why? Because I am planning for the failure of the marriage before I ever enter into it. Right? And I think Scripture says something greater to us about the way we have to understand marriage. That we don't enter in planning for failure. We enter in planning for fidelity and faithfulness. And that's what we are committing to because it says something greater than just about ourselves. It says something about God himself. Now, turn at the very beginning of the Bible. I just want to look at Genesis 2, and we're going to look at verse 24 because that verse is going to play a significant role in the passage this morning in Ephesians. But what I want to start with is just kind of biblically looking at this idea of marriage as it carries from the Old Testament into the New. And I'm going to start with Genesis 2.20 and just read down through 25. Let's just make some observations on this as we go and what we see. So Genesis 2.20 reads, The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs, closed it up in its flesh, closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall call thee woman, which is a Hebrew word, Isha, um, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, if you just read this passage in Genesis 2.20, you look, this seems to be talking about the need for Adam to have a helper to carry out the mandate that God had given him to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And that is right. I mean, that's, that's what's going on here. But in an honest assessment, if you first read this, how many of you go, oh, and that shows to me that it's talking about Christ and the church? The answer should be no, that's... that's no, we're not only not obvious, you're like, how, how would you see that reading this passage alone? And this is why we're going to understand this word mystery and what God is doing. You see, one of the things that God does is at times he withholds, he holds back a greater revelation until the appropriate time in which he wishes to reveal it. It doesn't mean it hasn't always been true, it just means that he's held it back. Parents, you've probably done this with children. There's appropriate times you reveal certain information to them for various reasons, right? Sometimes we do it for very joyous reasons, and that like they have a surprise birthday party or there's a gift you don't want them to know about. You withhold certain information so they don't get an idea that it's coming, right? You want them to be surprised by what they see. Now, sometimes God actually does this in Scripture, and it's called a mystery, it's not that it was like unsolvable. It's literally that God decided to hold back some revelation until there was an appropriate time for us to understand it. And when you read Genesis 2, 20 through 25, I think it's fair to say if you read that, you go, oh, I didn't realize that was Christ in the church. Of course not. 
What God is doing is building a foundation that begins to point towards something more significant. But notice what is important, one of the things he talks about is what becomes understood as the, the key marital passage in the Old Testament, and we'll actually see this reflected in the New Testament, is that a man and woman will be bound together in such a way that they will, you might look at it this way, they will basically abandon their parental commitments. It's pretty strong, isn't it? Meaning, my, my loyalty and allegiance is no longer to the one who gave me life in this case, my mother or my, or, and or my father, but it's to one that I've now been bound to or the one who's raised me, now I'm bound to another in a way that I could never be bound to my parents. And so what it does begin to set for us is this very foundational idea of this communal union bound to another that is unlike any other relationship. In fact, as we'll see in the New Testament, we'll read in a little bit, there are actually activities that you can partake of that, that actually are dangerous because it defies this very reality. And what is laid for here is that what we are seeing is that there is a union that God is going to use to help explain our union with Christ. So that we can begin to understand what does it mean that we are in union with Christ, bound to him. You see, what we see in, in the Old Testament is that God is using the picture of marriage to show a union. And then he uses this, as we'll see this, this picture progress throughout the Old Testament and he begins to show his union with the nation of Israel. So last week I, I spoke out of Ezekiel 16. And you see this picture predominantly used in the prophets. They use this picture of being uni bound to and unified with, in communion with God. They use the picture of marriage to show that. In Ezekiel, I'm just looking at Ezekiel 8, uh, 6, verse, 16, verse 8. I'll read this again. We read it last week. I'll read it again. You'll, you'll hear the language of marriage used to represent a union with God. In Ezekiel 16, picking up verse 8, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. That's the age in which you would be given to marriage. Right? You've matured into an adult, and now you're ready for marriage. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. This was the act to show that you were entering a covenant with somebody. Right? Unusual to us, this is not how we do it, but you actually see in the book of Ruth, where Boaz does this to Ruth, to show I am willing to enter into a marital covenant with you. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. You hear the possessiveness of this? There's a covenant that's entered into, and now Israel is his. You are mine. This is possessiveness in all the positive ways you can think about. You're mine unlike any other. You belong to me. And there is no other that can belong to me the way that you belong to me. That's, that's the idea behind this. You are mine. 
And then we read, Then I bathed you with water, washed you off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with all the embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. God took specific concern with Israel to make sure she was glorious because of what he did. You begin to see this pattern established in the Old Testament that's going to carry all, all the way into our passage in Ephesians 5. The possessiveness of the husband for the wife, in this case of God for Israel, and his concern with her glory. That she becomes renowned because of what he has done. Which, by the way, by Israel become glor- becoming glorious, becoming renowned, guess who becomes renowned because of it? God does. There's a reason this will carry this idea into the New Testament of when you talk about it, you treat your wife as your own body because in doing so, it is for your own advancement. It's like it's your own body. God does this to Israel because he chooses her because that's how he advances his glory. I'm going to make you renowned because that's going to make me renowned. Point being is God loves to use those who are bound to him to show his glory. There's, no, there's a reason why we use a phrase like, it is for God's great glory and our great good. Because what God is doing is he's working in such a way to use things in our lives to show his great glory. And we have this great benefit because of it. We become, become and you see here this language of beauty that he builds out. Beautiful because of the work of God. You also see it in the, in the book of Isaiah. So Ezekiel uses it, we referenced last week. In the book of Isaiah, you, you see this as well in Isaiah 54. I'm going to read Isaiah 54, 5 through 8. Another prophet says, For your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. God uses this picture of one who seems to be cast aside. Not loved. Right? Just you, you see the words there? Like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off. I redeemed you. I'm your husband. You, you hear the, the marital language of fidelity and commitment from God towards his people. Right? This doesn't end. Even, I mean, even references that for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. 
Now, read Isaiah, this great context. Why? Because the wife had abandoned the husband. Israel had sought after other gods. There's some powerful language of adultery used throughout the prophets. to say, you keep going after other gods, but my everlasting love, I have compassion on you, right? That's what he says. I continue to remain faithful. And you hear that marital language that he goes after Israel with, or over in the prophet of Jer- excuse me, in the book of the prophet of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah two, the word of the Lord came to me saying, "Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem." Thus says the Lord, "I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown." It's it's marital language again. I, I remember the days when you were. You were excited about me because I led you out of Egypt in the days of your youth. Now, how quickly Israel turns on God in Egypt and starts complaining about, you know, through his prophet Moses or against his prophet Moses, you just led us out here to die. How quickly they become unfaithful, but God doesn't. But hear the bridal language again that's used in the Old Testament. And this is, again, we're building from how does Genesis 2.24, this language of marriage, get carried into the New Testament. Well, you start seeing this as it starts reflecting in the New Testament through the the new covenant that Jeremiah speaks of in Jeremiah 31. So here you hear the bridal language reflected in Jeremiah 2, but now in Jeremiah 31, he starts talking about this new covenant. Behold, the days are coming. This is Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. Right? Hear the marital language again? Israel broke the covenant even though I was their husband. He says there in verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, you start to hear the, these echoes. And this is why it's like you can't quite put your finger on it, right? You're like, yeah, okay, seems to be kind of going somewhere in marriage. I kind of see where it's going. I hear the language, but it's not clear yet. It doesn't quite all fit together. Now, probably the most notable prophet in the Old Testament that uses marriage is Hosea, right? And the story of Hosea is one that that none of us would choose. Because God literally tells Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And I want you to have children with her. That's, you want to talk about a tough line of work, don't be a prophet. I'm just telling you, it is, you know, we, we kind of say it tongue-in-cheek, but prophets have a bad habit of getting asked to do really, really hard things, including dying, because they are asked to carry a message that is not popular to people. And Hosea, he literally says, you're going to carry a message through your marriage to the people of Israel. And then, he, so if you really look, it's in, it's in Hosea chapter 1 down through chapter 3. It's the main part, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the section here out of chapter 2, starting in verse 16. And Hosea 2, 16 says, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Okay, don't miss the relational change that's expressed there. You see, if you picture God as a bale, 
right? And there's, there's a lot of negative, horrendous things you can say about it. But what you, basically what you're saying is, you are the God I go to to get what I want. I mean, that, that's what Baal worship and other worship is. You're doing it because you need the land to grow, right? You need crops. Well, I better do something to get the, the rain to come. Right? I need blessing from this God. If I'm, so I'm going to go, he's my bail. But you realize what that does. It, it makes God more like a genie than a husband. And what God says is, the day will come when you will call me what? My husband. That's the type of relational nature. For I will remove the names of the bales, and that's verse 17, from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by, by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things in the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will, and there's marital language, I will betroth you to me forever. Wow. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. There's this day coming, right? This is, again, we're here in the Old Testament, the day's coming in which the nation of Israel, this Israel is going to be betrothed to God in some way that is beyond just merely this idea that he is a God to be used, but he's a God to be in intimate relation, communion with. So I, go, I point back, like, how in the world do we understand union with Christ? We talk, we talk about this idea of being in union with Christ, well... This begins to lay that ground. That's where we kind of, like, my finger's not quite on it. I, I don't quite get it yet. But God's doing something with his marital picture to help us understand. Well, then we see how Christ begins to use Genesis 2.24 specifically in the New Testament. So this, this marital weight, as it were, meaning the significance of it, we see how God has started using that language in the Old Testament, but he wants to bring this in the New Testament. And Christ starts using this language, and he very specifically uses Genesis 2.24 to address the issue of divorce. And he's asked, and I'm going to read out of Matthew 19, but you also see this account over in Mark chapter 10 as well. Jesus is asked, he says, And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And there was great debate over this in the, in the uh, rabbi community. There was one set of, of those who believed you could divorce your life over basically anything at all, including it was accounted, we see it in later rabbinical writings, but they seem to, seem to reflect what was believed, burnt toast, right? We, we laugh because we're like, you know, I mean, they didn't have toasters back then. I guess, you know, watch the, watch the toast on the flame. But I mean, you could, and, and it was very easy to do. You basically could basically say three times, I divorce you, write it down on a sheet of paper and send her away. Now, there was another camp that said, no, 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 you, you, there's only certain reasons and they're much more profound, you can be divorced. But it's interesting to me that Christ doesn't just want to take that head on. There is something more significant he's worried about. Notice how he responds to it. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Right? That's out of Genesis. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. 
Okay, our Lord uses Genesis 2.24 to say, there is something more significant than merely having a helper. It's you are bound to her. You, you seem to have missed that. It's part of what he's telling the Pharisees. Like, why would you divorce over any cause? They're bound together in one flesh. You can't just rip that apart. That's why it says when God is joined together, no man rip asunder, right? That's, there's this, this mysterious binding together. And for any of us that are in marriage, right, you understand this. You know, in marital counseling, as I go through peer marital counseling with couples and stuff, I, I, I tell them, okay, I can tell you a lot about marriage. I can describe it to you. I can give you warnings. I can give you, you know, Pro tips on not what to do, because I've got that category covered. I can also give you some tips on what you should do. My wife has helped me with that. Um, that's a joke. You guys can laugh at that later. But the reality is, is that, you know, I can describe all these things, but you won't really understand it until you get into it, right? Yeah, amen. Halitosis, hal- halitosis, you know, bad breath. All those things come with marriage. You're like, yeah, I don't know how to tell you to, to cover that. Like, that's just... You start learning all the idiosyncrasies, and it's not just one day. Guess what? That idiosyncrasy is there day after day after day after day. And their preferences and and their weaknesses and their strengths and having to learn, and you start discovering things about each other. And you can't describe all that. I mean, I can give you all the, you know, I can can, can give you a personality test, and I can give you everything else. And those are helpful, but they aren't definitive. I mean, you, you have to get in a marriage to really understand it. Now, by the way, let me make a side comment here. That doesn't mean those of you who walk in singleness, and that's what God has you either in this season of life, and some of you may be called to that permanently, and that may be where you're at. That doesn't mean you can't understand you with Christ. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you can understand it because you can begin looking at a marriage and help to understand that's what it looks like. And Christ is saying here in Matthew 19, realize this, this coming together as one flesh has real, real lasting significance. You're not supposed to tear this apart. But it, it's because when you start laying that foundation, you start seeing a more significant thing going on. Paul then looks, if we look in 1 Corinthians 6, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about the danger of sexual immorality. And he uses Genesis 2.24 to warn what's going on. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, and I'll pick up in 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. It's an interesting comment. He's going to build that out. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Right? The, the problem going on in Corinth, a, a major problem, was prostitution. If you know anything about Corinth, there's a reason for that. It was a sailing port. Now, by the way, it doesn't make all sailors bad. My dad was a guy in the Navy, like my dad, okay? But what it does say is there's dangers in that port because you have guys that are transient going through. And there were cults that built up, and you had this easy access to prostitutes in Corinth. And it actually, if you go look at Corinth, it's located on this really weird um, piece of land that has two bodies of water one thing they could actually do is take it and pass a ship from one side to the other and just, you'd be sitting around waiting all day or days, depending on how long it took, to take a ship over land. But it is an interesting problem that developed in that now the city became kind of known for sexual immorality. 
And he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And his answer is never. That should never happen. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Right? He is warning that sexual union has real consequences to it. Not just consequences that may be um, physical in nature. He's, he's literally warning that there are significant emotional, spiritual things going on. And we have to be aware of that. I, I should stop here. Let me say something because, look, there are many in our body and many that, that I know that have the testimony, hey, you know, sex outside of marriage occurred, whether it be before marriage, there was an adulterous relationship, etc. Let me be real clear. That's not the unforgivable sin. Okay? That doesn't mean that God is now, you're the one to be cast aside. God doesn't ever want to be, you to be part of his body, etc. What he's warning us is there is something significant that's supposed to be pictured in marriage that we don't want to take away from. And he warns because there is real consequences, and he noticed there in verse 16. Or do you not know the one who's joined to a prostitute come one with her body? For as it is written, and he quotes Genesis 2.24, 2.24 the last part of it, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you, have, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul is using this picture of union within marriage to explain how intimate the union we have with God is. You understand what he's saying? He's like, you do not want to take God into this unholy relationship. I mean, that, that's the idea behind it. Now, again, let me say, because so many walk here, especially in our day and age, and realize this was happening in Corinth, okay? He's writing to people that would have the testimony, hey, I have joined with a prostitute. They would have said something like that. I mean, they had done this, and what he's trying to say is, don't continue on in that. Stop. You're, you're part of the body of Christ. So now you, you need to show your glorious union with, with Christ. Because when you enter in this relationship with another that's not within the bond of marriage, you have joined with them in a way that you shouldn't. And that idea is what then carries in here into Ephesians 5, 29 and 30. So let me kind of finish building out this idea here in Ephesians 5. So again, you're trying to put your finger on all this, like, what is, what is going on? Why is Genesis 2.24 and the, this marriage picture and everything that's going on, right? What I, what I told you is that it's like God has held something back to be revealed later, and now he's going to show what the gloriousness is that he's trying to show in marriage. And it's even more glorious than you having somebody you can spend the rest of your life with. And that is a glorious thing. I tell people all the time, I, I personally highly recommend marriage. Right? I say it all the time. It's not that I've had a perfect marriage. Right? It's not that we've never had our issues. Um, it's not that we haven't walked through hard times together. But you know what? I highly recommend marriage. Because God does something in that relationship that he shows that he won't show outside of marriage.
and that is for the gospel to be seen. Notice if you're there in Ephesians 5, verse 29, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, right? He's talking to husbands. The wife is your own body, your own flesh, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So the argument that Paul's making is, is men in marriage, you need to cherish and nourish your wife because she is your body. And notice the analogy, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. That's the, you see the argument by analogy that he's making. You better treat her with nourishing and cherishing because that's how our Lord treats us. That's what he's done. What, what happened or what Christ has done is that he self-sacrificially loves, cherishes, and nourishes the church because the church is his body. Right? He, he, he literally is compelled to nourish and cherish us because we are his body. And how do you explain that? Well, the best picture I can give you is what marriage is. It's different than any other relationship. And this is what Christ is doing with the church. I mean, he's argued this throughout Ephesians. Paul has. You may remember as you've gone through this series. Now, I realize, I, forgot, I went to look at the starting date, but I know it's been months now. So we've been going through this for a while. But it's interesting. Ephesians 1, you just go back to Ephesians 1, a couple of pages. 22 says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him a head over all things to the church, which is his body. Right? Paul's been, the church is his body. Or in Ephesians 2, he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments exposed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. And then he goes on in Ephesians 3, and this is where he really talks about the mystery. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Right? We talked about this earlier. Which was not made known to the sons of man in other generations. So this is, by the word, Christ is Messiah. Here's the mystery of the Messiah. This is what the Messiah does. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul is arguing throughout Ephesians, body, 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 Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, one baptism, right? And then you get to Ephesians 5.23, where he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Okay, I think we get the point. The church is the body of Christ. And now Paul says, okay, here's what I was trying to get at. Here's the summarizing argument. I've been talking about submission. Wives, submit to your husband because he's the head of head talking about husbands, husbands, love your wife. Again, not rule, which is what the culture would expect him and said. Love your wife. She's your own body. And then he says, 531, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And he explains in verse 32 what he means. And here's the big, the big reveal. 
This is where, oh, I couldn't quite put my finger on it, and now I understand what God is trying to do with marriage. Verse 32, this mystery is profound. As in profoundly important, it is significant. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, what, he, what, he, what Paul does is all this language that you've heard about the body of Christ, this, this relationship that we're in with him, etc., there's a profound mystery that, that you have not seen that God has revealed, and that is marriage was being used to reveal that to us. For ages, he's trying to show to us there is a profound relationship between the people of God and their God that marriage actually captures. That can't be captured in any other way. You know, he says it, it refers to Christ and the church. And there's passages, and I won't read through them this morning, but in Mark 2.18, which you also see over in Luke 5, Jesus claims to be the bridegroom. He literally, he literally says that the reason why we're, the, the other John's disciples are fasting and we're not is because the bridegroom, Jesus referring to himself, I'm with you. You don't fast when I'm here. I'm the bridegroom. John himself, John the Baptist, identifies Christ as the bridegroom. He says in John chapter 3, he tells him, he says that this is the one, he's, he says, John the Baptist says, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, it's not me. He says, rather, if you look, it is the, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. It's, it's that Jesus guy, he's the bridegroom. And then he goes on, and, and we see later as Paul talks about this um, in, in 2 Corinthians he says also, he says, you know, he talks about like, I was jealous because I was trying to present you Corinthians to Christ like a virgin, prepared to be married. He's using this bridal language, and of course, probably the one that most of us may remember, even if we don't know where it's found, is the great, the great uh, marriage feast of the Lamb in Revelation, in which it reads that there's this loud thundering voice of a great multitude that roars like many waters, that is the sound of a mighty, mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has been made herself ready. That she is, it says, was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so Paul's saying there is something greater that our marriages is showing that goes beyond just our marriage itself. And it's this great union with Christ. And that's why he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is Paul referring to here? What is he saying when he refers to Christ and church? What Paul is doing, he's helping us to understand that godly, gospel-centered marriages are so important because they picture a reality. They picture a reality, and that reality is the relational picture of two distinct persons becoming united together in intimate communion. That, that's what the picture is. 
How do I show that two people can come together in intimate communion in no other way but in marriage? That's how you do it. And I'm using that picture then Paul's saying, and this is a summarizing argument, why he's arguing for submission and love within marriage. It's not just to have a well-ordered household. It's not just so we can get along. It literally is so we can reveal the gospel. You see, what he's done, he says, when what he's explaining is that union with Christ. He is showing to us in the picture of marriage, God is showing to us in the picture of marriage, revealed through the words of Paul, our marriages reveal the union of Christ and the church. That's how serious our marriages are. There's a reason why some of you, you may be going through, the reason you fight for your marriage is because you're fighting for the gospel in your marriage. You are fighting to show the gloriousness of the union of our Lord with us. Because that's the relationship he has chosen to use to reveal this. This was the great mystery that we didn't see. We, we kind of vaguely knew and couldn't quite put our finger on it. And now he says, let's be clear. This great mystery is that last phrase, the two shall become one flesh. It is we as the body of Christ are the bride of Christ. We are his body. And he chooses to cherish and nourishes us. It is picturing relational Union and communion. You need to see your marriages that way. For those of you that are seeking marriage or, or need to be married, as you go through realize what you're doing. You're showing something more glorious than even being in union with another human being. As glorious as that is, and that is a glorious thing. You are showing the gloriousness of Christ and his church. So then Paul summarizes and he finishes However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word however loses a little nuance for us because it almost sounds like it's contrasting something like, hey, I said this really important thing, but, you know, but do this anyway. It's not what he's saying. The, the however really points more back to that mystery. Like what was mysterious, this mystery is profound, okay, which is hard to understand in its fullness. And anyone who has to explain marriage in all its fullness knows that. However, even if you can't explain all of it, you know what you can do? You can show the gloriousness of the gospel through the way you relate. And that's why he says, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You know, th these can be very hard words for us. Very hard words. Because, let's just be honest, the other person is not always lovable. Now, I, I realize that's a dangerous statement because I'm talking about I should be loving my wife, right? In all instances. Because that's what was reflected in the way God loved his people. We were the unworthy, unwanted bride. And he says, I'm going to redeem that one. So he shows grace to us. And so my love is compelled not by my wife earning my love. It's compelled because I am showing grace at all points. 
And ladies, I, I realize when we talk about submission with marriage, if you have a, a, a husband that's not doing this, I realize that, yes, there is real danger in showing him respect. And you're going, man, I, that could be taken advantage of. And it can. And let me just be blunt, that's sin and ungodliness when he does. But one of the things you're choosing to do is to deny yourself and say, you know what, I'm going to find, if I can, I'm going to find ways so that my husband can be shown respect so that I can at least give a glimpse of the gospel in my marriage. Now, you can go back and listen to my previous sermons. There are things, that doesn't mean you just do whatever he says. Even I mean, you can look. I, I spent basically a week and a half telling you what, not, what that doesn't mean. What I am saying is, ladies, you have the ability to show the fidelity of the body of Christ to Christ the way you relate to your husband. To show him respect where you can so that it glorifies the gospel. Because people are at, why would you do that? It makes no sense. Like, he doesn't deserve it, and you're like, that's exactly right, he doesn't. But grace says, I will give it to him anyway because I'm able to show the gospel in my marriage. There's a reason why our Lord said that part of following him is denying ourselves and taking of our cross daily. That's even inside our own marriages sometimes. I pray it's less often than daily for you. I pray there would be a sweetness in your marriages. And honestly, if we can live in godly, Christ-centered, gospel-focused, driven, advancing marriages, it, there will be a sweetness to them. But when the moment comes when the sweetness is not there, you still have to think there's something more glorious in this than just showing my relationship to my spouse. What I'm showing is the gloriousness of the gospel. I'm showing that in my marriage. Realize that when we do live in ungodly ways in our marriage, we distort the gospel. We distort the gospel when we live in our marriages in ungodly ways. It distorts it. There's a reason why then people go, I don't quite understand what the gospel is. And, and I realize for those that don't follow Christ, that's going to be natural, as it were. They're, they're going to distort the gospel. Because they don't see the call to show the gospel in their marriage. But for those of us that follow Christ, it's exactly what we're called to. We are called to show the gospel clearly in our marriages. To show grace and love inexplicable grace to our spouse. The gospel will be seen. Because we need to see that the greatest purpose of marriage is display the union between Christ and the church. That is the greatest purpose. I pray today that when you think i got to put my finger on it, maybe you'll look at that wedding ring finger a little bit differently. Maybe you'll look at it and say, oh, I see God can use my marriage and is using my marriage to show the gloriousness of the gospel. Father, I thank you for Paul and God his sharing with us how we are to live in marriage. But Father, not merely as a social structure to, to give us a well-ordered marriage, though that's a, a kind thing that you show us. Father, even a greater purpose is that we would show the gospel in our marriage, that God, we literally are proclaiming the gospel with our marital lives. 
God, I just pray that um, for those that are here today struggling in their marriage, God, give them hope. Father, give them perseverance and give them endurance. Father, for those that are in their marriage and living in sin, give to them conviction. And Father, even guilt and shame. Father, you give that to them that they might feel the weight of what it is to live in sin, that they might see the gloriousness of the forgiveness found in Christ. And God, I pray that um, you would use that to draw them to Christ. For those that, that know Christ as their Lord and Savior, to draw them back. For those that don't, that they would see the goodness of what it means to come to a Savior that forgives the unforgivable. That there is no sin beyond the pale of forgiveness of my Lord. Father, for those that are walking in marriages together and have been faithful and have enjoyed, enjoyed the sweetness of walking in Christ together, God, I just pray, would you continue to give them sweetness in their marriage, of enjoying this union that's inexplicable, but Father, that you would use it so they can speak of the gospel clearly to others. How can a, how can a marriage flourish in a, in a day where, where marriage may not be valued as it once was, and we say, because our God values it and wishes it to be used to show his glory that you would see the gospel. God, use us. Use our marriage. Use our marriages here in our church to show the marriage between Christ and his body. That the gospel will be proclaimed even by the way in which we live with one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning as the, uh, the worship team Sings. You can stand with me right now. Well, I'll be down front. I know Pastor Rigo, I, I saw Pastor Rigo and Pastor Earl. I'm going to ask them to come down front. If you need prayer for your marriages, you need guidance, uh, let me just encourage you to, to, to feel free to come and, and speak with one of us. And, and we can speak to you of, uh, even now, but even set up in the days to come, speak to you about marriage. If you don't know Christ, Man, I, I just can't encourage you enough to know what it is to follow Christ, to be bound with Him by placing your faith in Him. And if you don't know that sweetness of being part of the body of Christ and knowing Christ, we are here. And for some of you, maybe, you're just going to grab your spouse's hand and you're going to pray together. And you're going to say, let us live our marriages in such a way that the gospel is Whatever you may need, we'll be here. If you need counseling or prayer, you come if you want to pray as well. We'll be here. Let's sing together.